0: Hello everyone, my name is Kanai Kapadia. I'm the president and chief analyst of KGK & Company. KGK is a strategic management consultancy that helps middle market companies align with their best growth opportunities, overcome their more challenging operational frustrations, and ultimately to grow their earnings. If you're intrigued by the idea of a firm, that wants to be a profit center rather than a cost center for your business. Use the link in the show notes to connect with me. On this episode, I'm talking with Mark Rickmeyer, CEO of TableXI, which is a UX research, design, and software development company based in Chicago. Over the past 20 years, he's created more than 100 mobile apps, custom-built web applications, and intuitive user experiences for companies like Tyson Foods, Discover, AccuWeather, and the Field Museum. He's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Fast Company on changes in the software development industry, and regularly contributes in Chicago's Forbes Business Council. He's an incredibly engaging speaker, but what I like most is that he not only preaches innovation, he practices it. He's the founder of OpsConf, which is short for Operations Conference, which is a global community of competing software companies who share insights, swap ideas, and even collaborate when they go to market. Mark co-founded WalkShop, which gives CEOs a way to get out of the office, into nature with a handful of their peers, and reframe the way they're thinking about their business. Mark authored The Sticky Note Game as a way to improve employee engagement and career growth as well as inclusion meaning cards, which is a game designed to improve communication and collaboration at work. Well, Mark, let me first start by thanking you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me this morning. So your career spans ThoughtWorks, where you came up through the ranks, and then at Table XI, where you also came up through the ranks. Can you maybe start by telling us just a little bit about what does Table XI do? Funny you wouldn't know by the name, would
1: you? We get that a lot. They're like, is it table extra large? Is it table nine if people can't read the Roman numerals? So Table XI is a custom software design development company. We help people with product innovation, building mobile apps, chatbots, web applications, building technology that helps them to grow their business. And as a consultancy, we had grown up in Chicago. We have a lot of Chicago-based clients, but the last five, 10 years, we now have clients in Tokyo and Singapore and New York and Europe and then across the US. So my job is a mixture of both the highly creative side, helping to come up with ideas and concepts. And then on the engineering side, actually bringing those ideas to life and actually building something, sparking that, you know, inner Lego child in me being able to still build roll up my sleeves and get things out the door.
0: Yeah. Now, do you guys take a design centric approach to software or a business strategy focused approach which you know we're kind of splitting hairs here maybe but you know the strategy comes before the design i think we would say we take a very human-centered
1: approach for a product in an innovation one of the words i think we're really looking for is pragmatic and that's a very chicago theme of value but just for the sake of innovation kind of feels like innovation theater you're coming up with an idea that never sees the light of day doesn't go anywhere And so when we're talking about building out a product and introducing some new software, we want to do that with a pragmatic viewpoint that's actually going to have a real business value. It's going to have real ROI. It's going to get used by real users and solve a problem. And so I would say we're not where We're going to give you like a half a million dollar PowerPoint deck and say, good luck. Hope it goes well, because we like to actually see the thing through and actually build it. And we're not cognizant where we have a large offshore team where you have to spell out all the requirements and give marching orders. We like being able to help think through the approach, but also have the team that can deliver that. And so when we talk about being human-centered in our approach, it's knowing that you're solving a real problem and focusing on the problem before you get to a solution and having the user in mind when you're trying to design and build something.
0: Hmm. Thanks for making that distinction. I appreciate it. I like the idea of human-centered. It encompasses both, actually, in a smarter way, a more simpler way, if you will. I like, yeah. I mean, it has to be used by humans at the end of the day for it yeah. to be valuable. So it has to have business
1: sense. But I think it's funny that when you become human centered, you start watching out for like different things. Like the word "just" is the biggest four letter word in our business. And so whenever someone says like, "I just need you to build this," or like, "I have this idea, I just need you to add, you know, people to the team," I'm like, "Well, is that really the right thing to do? Really? Like, let's talk to the users and find out what they really need." And so when you start focusing on that and thinking about what humans will actually use with the software when it goes live, you start thinking about priorities and designs
0: a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been there almost 10 years. And when you first started, what was your role in the in the company?
1: Uh, I started off, I think my official title was, uh, I don't know, like director of delivery and then became COO about a year later and then took on the CEO role about four years ago.
0: What personal development did you have to do in order to continue to elevate through these different roles and do well in them?
1: It's For me right now, it's changing actually quite a bit. It's an interesting question you've asked, and it's one I've been struggling with. So just for context, we're a 50-person, about $11 million business, and my role has changed a lot in the last, I would say, 12 months. So even though I've been CEO, Previously, I was also CEO slash head of sales and head of demand, which basically means I'm head of sales and demand with a little bit of time to be CEO. Like when you're in charge of the revenue and you're in charge of making sure you can you know, make payroll and add people in charge of growth, you focus on sales all the time. And we got to that inflection point where I wanted to be able to invest more in the demand engine of the business so I could not be involved in the day to day demand work particularly bursty. It's a weird word, but like you'll have a whole, you know, you got to get a proposal out the door by Friday or you've got a new sales call you have to take. And I was getting to the point where people on my team would say, hey, can I get a one-on-one? I was like, yeah, next month. No problem. Because right now I'm pretty busy. Like It was a really okay. weird to be in. And so I've now had to change my role from being like a person who executes something. Like I had a sales plan to execute. I was driving that to actually being the person who pairs with other people and helping them to execute their thing. So I have head of talent that I'm helping with on the recruiting side. I have a diversity team I'm helping with on our goals on the diversity side. I have an operations person who's helping us scale our staffing approach. And I'm going to do a person who's in charge of demand. And so I find myself in this weird role where like, I don't do anything except help other people accomplish their goals. And it's weird because I'm used to being, especially when you come up through the ranks, you're used to being an individual contributor. You're used to doing, you're used to executing. And now my job is not to execute, But to create a vision and help other people execute to it, it's a weird mindset shift that honestly, I still struggle with occasionally, because I'm so used to being the person doing. In a small company, you wear so many hats. You always do. You have to. So yeah, my role is changing where I'm not the one doing as much anymore, but helping others to get things done. And it's a shift that I'm trying to get more comfortable with. It's pushing my abilities as a CEO to be a better CEO and a better visionary. But it's also deeply unsettling and uncomfortable at times.
0: So this is a really interesting topic because how the CEO stops selling, when they stop selling, if they stop selling. CEO never stops selling. Let's be clear about that. But
1: they're not responsible for the entire burden of it. And they're not the one probably doing the initial qualification. They're not the ones doing a lot of the outbound sales and marketing. Like a team create, it comes to help shoulder that burden and, and frankly, get us to a place we couldn't do on our own. But I think that's part of the CEO's job is to always be making new connections and, frankly, to always be selling and recruiting. I don't think a CEO ever gets away from those things.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Where I'm going with this question, though, is how did you come to the decision and the realization that you need to build some structure and some, I'll call it scale, to the way that you're approaching sales?
1: There's a great tool. So we rolled out a process called the Entrepreneurial Operating System, or EOS for short. We rolled that out, gosh, about seven years ago or so. But one of the exercises that they do, that they encourage all the leaders in the company to do, is this process called Delegate and Elevate, where you make a a kind of a quadrant of things that you are good at and love to do, things that you are good at and like to do, things that you are good at and don't like to do and things you're not good at and don't like to do. And sales is one of those things that I was good at and didn't like to do. And part of the focus was how do you really get yourself to be in that position where you drive the most energy, where you're working at your most efficient? How do you only focus on the things that you are both good at and you love to do and delegate everything else? There were certain things I was bad at and didn't like to do. Like writing statements of work and contracts, I hated that. And so you, there would be projects where we'd finish the project before the statement of work was finished because I just hated going through all, <laughs> all the legal needs, which is terrible. And I did other times where I find my energy was really draining. I loved meeting new people. I love building up partnerships. And I love finding new opportunities. But sales is a lot more than that. You've got to go through you know a qualification process and a proposal process. And those were things that required a significant amount of time that I was good at, but I just didn't enjoy it. And I wanted to find someone that could really help us amplify our message. And so that was a big realization. was sitting down with my team and looking at this and being like, I see these increasing targets every year and I'm not excited by it. That's not what I want to do. And especially in sales, you need someone who is really excited by that challenge and not daunted by it. So that was a change. I think it was a big change in the whole company had to sit back and reflect on what my role really should be. So it's been a big two year change getting me out of the sales seat as the predominant person was a huge change in the company. And now we have a person who's way more qualified to do that than I was. And I get to change my role to support my entire leadership team as opposed to being so focused on sales that I really can't talk to people till next month. So it's a big evolution. And I think I think it was around the $9 million mark when we started making that change.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through how you made that change? even blow by blow, like was it just about hiring someone? And I don't want to trivialize it by using the word just. but (laughs) It's the
1: biggest spoiler in my industry. Uh, Yeah, no. Um, So we brought in a sales coach to help us think about what is the kind of organization that we need to support sales and think about everything from client partnership to demand on the outbound side, the marketing side, and the various different personalities that you need. Because you need a kind of person, like I said, who is excited by that challenge, who is motivated by growth, and doesn't mind getting told no a lot or getting rebuffed a lot, that you have to have a certain kind of personality to succeed in sales. And it was really funny. So we part of it was also uh, some tests that we gave. So there's some people internally, we thought, well, maybe this person could do it. So we this person, uh, our coach came in and interviewed our team, and we went through some assessments. And one of them was an IQ assessment, like a kind of intelligence assessment. And afterward, he sat down, and he's like, you know, Mark, you never want to be the smartest person in the room. And for you, that shouldn't be a problem. So I was like, oh man, that's that's pretty harsh. he uh, <laughs> was like, good thing you keep hiring smart people. I didn't do so well, apparently, on the IQ portion of the test. But it was great to see like all the things that we thought make up the personality of a really good sales team. And you need a person that helps out on the ops side of sales. that does like forecasting and planning and people to do outbound demand. Anyway, so we brought in this person to help us think about what should a team look like as opposed to finding one hero person to take over everything. We thought about what the structure looked like. And then after that, we then started thinking about, okay, now that we have a structure in place, what's the right kind of personality and experience that we need? We did something a little unorthodox. Rather than hiring a salesperson and teaching them about product innovation and product design, we found a person with 20 years of product experience and decided to teach them sales. And figured we want someone who can really authentically talk about the stuff that we do, and who knows our industry well, knows software and design really well, and knows product really well, because those are the people we sell to. And so we took a person who had that experience, who was ready for a change in their career, and said, you're selling to people who look a lot like you. And we've decided to try to go that route, rather than try to get a hard-charging salesperson that does not have any context about custom software, and try to teach them about that. So we went with this path instead, and I'm extremely glad that we did.
0: This is more a question of personal curiosity. How did you teach them sales? How did you go about doing that? (laughs) Ask me in two years. Um, So, part of that was helping
1: them get a sales coach that can help them think through how do you do qualification? What questions do you ask? How do you weed out the people that you think aren't going to be the right fit for you? Got them peers in the industry, people that do this elsewhere, particularly peers that came up the same way. They came up through product and design and then took on sales things, people that really understood what it meant to do an authentic sale, and then gave them help with things that were just outside of their own sweet spot. So things that could be done with like marketing and SEO and automation that wouldn't have to be their background. And having peers, having a coach, and having lots of support. But I think the thing that we really couldn't teach was that 20 years of experience that you can just tell. You can tell when you're talking to a salesperson versus someone who knows what they're talking about. And we really wanted someone that could authentically represent the work that we're doing. That's something you can't teach. That's 20 years of of experience. Whereas some of the sales techniques, I think we could. That's our approach.
0: Yeah. Well, that certainly passes my test and jives with my experiences. You have to be a subject matter expert in order to sell services at a certain level. And it's pretty obvious when you've got the quote-unquote account executive in the room who's basically keeps the process going, takes notes, et cetera, and then the subject matter expert. And it's nice to have that combined into one. Yep.
1: I think especially for services, you have to be able to talk about the way the work does. And you you have to be an advisor. Basically what this role is, is a strategic advisor for people, giving them advice on how to approach things and what to look for and how to make their business successful. And I found that the best way to do that was to get someone who had been in that role for 20 years. And anyone who meets this woman, she's amazing. Going can be like, Oh my God. And then they read your background. You know, she doesn't read or come across as a salesperson. She's a product in a visionary and in Chicago. So I was actually just thankful that she was willing to take on this challenge because it's a total to pivot in her career, but she can do it very authentically, which I think is the critical thing in a services business.
0: Yeah. Congrats on finding her. Yeah. Speaking of delegate and elevate. So you've delegated. How has that allowed you to elevate thus far? And I realize it's a journey and you're at a certain point in that process, but can you give us a lens into that? Yeah, Uh, well, I can give you a lens into what I'm
1: trying. And so there are two things that I'm fundamentally trying to do differently than I had done in the past. One is that I'm spending a lot more time pairing with people on my leadership team. We've always had a very strong focus on accountability and giving people the autonomy to make decisions. Uh, but now I want to be able to give them a bit more support, particularly with COVID. This is very uncertain times, very challenging times, and so it allows me to be able to pair with them and help them on the pretty ambitious goals we have as a company, and that's very rewarding because otherwise I would never really get that one-on-one time with folks when I was so busy on the sales side. But the second thing, and this is what's hard to protect, particularly, I think, when you're used to doing so much, is I'm trying to protect time to think and to write about where I want to go as a business what I want to personally achieve what I want to see us achieve and if you're familiar with that there was a really good interview between Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates was showing his weekly planner all the stuff he was doing and he had like every day was like you know meeting this meeting that all these things we were doing and Warren Buffett had like I think two meetings on the week and that was it the rest was him reading and thinking and he told Bill, he's like, I'm sure you're successful, but you're doing it wrong. Busy is the new stupid. Like you are spending so much time being busy that you don't give yourself any time to think what you think and giving yourself that time to really examine where you want to go and be intentional about it. He's like, that's way more important than you being busy doing all these things. And it's really made me think about how much of my week is spent sending the next invoice or booking a meeting or, you know, sending an email versus really thinking about where we want to go. And so part of this Delegate and Elevate challenge is trying to give myself the explicit freedom to be able to think about where we're going and protect that time, even for my own just mental health, having that time to really think about where I want to go. And it's incredibly important work to do that. And when you're so used to doing, you devalue that work and you you associate busyness with value when it's not the case at all. And so I think that's a big mental shift for me is focusing on giving myself that freedom and, and unapologetically giving myself that time to not be in meetings and not have to be doing things, but thinking about where I want to go next.
0: Yeah. When you were a consultant and you started selling and leading, did it feel similar in that you sort of wondered, is this real work? Sales, for example, is a lot of consultants look at what salespeople do and they're like, that's not real work. Is that how it felt then? Is that how it also feels now? You're sort of adapting to what this new work feels like and looks like?
1: When I first started doing, let's say managing my very first project and growing an account and then you know, growing an office, it came on gradually because it was just a natural thing you would do when you're growing an account. You think about, well, how else can we be providing value? What's the next project we can be doing? So you think about that and you build relationships with people you're working pretty closely with. At some point, i like, now I don't build that much. My job is to build relationships and find new opportunities, but I'm not fingers on the keyboard coding. And so, yeah, I, I joke that like my job really is to think and talk for a living. Like, I try to meet people and understand what they're going on in their business, spot trends in the industry and give them the best advice that I can. And then, frankly, recruit the best team that I can so that when they have a challenge, I can bring in you know world-class designers and product thinkers and, and technologists to help them achieve something. But again, I don't do that anymore. I have an amazing team that's way more qualified at that that can do it. And so, yeah, it's a different way to think about things that my role is maybe like chief introducer. I try to find really great people and introduce them to the people at TableXI. But at one point, someone asked me, like, have you ever had that really pressure-filled moment where you're the closer and they bring you in to close a sale? And I think a lot of people think of the CEO that way. And I was like, no, that's not my job. Like, I'm not going to close anyone. It's the developers and designers. They're the ones doing the work. They're the ones who are going to close it. My job is to tee them up, but I'm not the closer. Like, if they're buying Table TableXI because they're buying me, I think we've made a mistake somewhere. I think they need to be seeing the actual work from the actual people. So, yeah, more often than not, my job is to get the right people in the room and get out of the way. And so my job is become one of relationships and trying to find a way to spot those opportunities, but get the right people talking. It's a different role
0: I had clearly earlier. Mm -hmm. What do you view as the key success factors for the business now going forward? Well, I think there's one thing I don't know how to do. And that is, in the
1: pandemic, we are one of the lucky few software can be written from anywhere. And so the fact that we don't have an office and can't get together hasn't slowed us down. We had our biggest growth year ever last year. You know, we were doing rather well. I mean, it's hard to say that. The world was on like a dumpster fire last year. But like, you know, we did well from a business perspective. But at what cost? I think people are feeling stress. People are isolated. There's all kinds of horrible things happening in the news. And there are lots of ways we've been trying to protect and take care of people on the team. But that sense of isolation and that sense of just stress, it just permeates everything. And so one of the main things that I look at for this year is like, how do we get through this year? I was reading a Newsweek article that said with the variants and the strain, like we could be dealing with COVID, we could be in quarantine for another year yet, like even though vaccines are coming out, it's like a race between the variants against the vaccines and we could be here for a while. And so I have to think about how do you continue to hire and onboard people who have never met each other face to face? And how do you hold on to culture when... People are burned out and they're tired and they're isolated. And that's not possibly going away for another year. And so there's elements of this that I think we do rather well. And there's elements where I'm like, we gotta let go of the things that we try to do in a personal world and come up with different ways of connecting. That isolation will continue to get worse. And so that's something that I don't know any of us have really figured out yet. Everyone did like the Zoom happy hours for like a hot minute in March last year. And that got real fast. And just finding a way for people to connect and not burn out when they have very little a few other places to go. So I don't think I have an answer on that. I don't know if anyone really does. When everyone's not working from home, what they're living at work all the time, it's really tough. And I can see the impact and the wear on clients and on people. And it's going to be... One of the most important things we examine this year as leaders is that sense of mental health and wellness. Hmm. The ability to keep it together. So yeah, I think for individuals to be able to draw that line and think about what they need to do, but also for a company culture to survive, culture is based on rituals and storytelling and people come together and have shared experiences. And it's hard to do that when you can't get together, especially at TableXI, a company that is used to having... A chef, and we cook meals together, and we eat together, and a lot of the cultural milestones, the rituals, and the things people enjoyed all stopped and trying to hold on to that sense of who you are. If this drags out for another year, that sense of isolation is going to be really hard on all of us, and you don't want to look back 2023 and not recognize who your companies anymore.
0: Mm-hmm you know, arguably TableXI has won a few awards for, right? By way of best places to work and, and so on. Have you had to change the culture at Table XI over the years? Or did you inherit the culture that you're now fostering and, and a steward of? So the former CEO and the founder of TableXI
1: had a very strong focus on what the culture of TableXI should be. And so I inherited this really strong, supportive culture and have done a lot to invest in that over the years to make sure that that is always a primary focus. I think we're a very culture-driven company. I think what we're finding is that a lot of the things that we would do, the techniques that we would use, like every three months we all fly in together and have an all-hands together where we talk about the company and where we're going. I mean, I said we had that chef in the office. We'd all cook together and eat together. All these things aren't practical anymore. And it's not just the distance. It's the fact that everyone is carrying this kind of mental load with all the things that are happening in the world. There's a sense of burnout that's just very, very strong. And so we're thinking about how do you culturally keep people aligned? And it makes you rethink. Like the onboarding program we had totally doesn't work anymore. Like you have to think of a whole new onboarding mechanism when everyone's distributed. And how do you make people feel like they are a part of things? So most of us, I think... Who really are culture first organizations are having to reinvent a lot of the rituals and the stories we tell to help bridge that gap, especially if we're gonna be here for another year or so. An unthinkable change in our business. We're gonna be giving up our office. Like that's been home for 10 years. That place is, we've been investing so much to make that place feel like home and to facilitate our process and work really well. And to lose that space, a cornerstone of what our company was all about. It's really hard. Like that hit people really hard. Our lease is up for renewal. We're not going to keep it. We might have a space at some point in the future, but it won't be that space. And so you almost feel a little nomadic now trying to figure out what space we will have going forward. There are lots of obviously business challenges that we still have to be focusing on sales and marketing and other things in a typical year. But this sense of culture and belonging, it's going to be very important to me over this year because it looks like we're going to be here for a while. I don't know that we're going to be back human to human connection anytime soon. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Are you guys intentionally redesigning for whatever materializes over the next year, but redesigning around a distributed, a need to create and foster culture when this distributed model, is it a passive exercise or is it a something you're redesigning intentionally?
1: Culture is one of those things that you have to be intentional about. Like culture is always evolving, whether you're intentional about it or not. So it's best to really understand what's going on and really lean into it. In 2019, we tried to be more supportive of distributed team members that were not in Chicago, but it was still a Chicago first company. Like most people were there out of 35 people, 27 or so were in the office at any given time. And in the last year alone, we've hired someone in Canada, Scotland, Colorado, like we're not as Chicago focused anymore. And so we're making it an intentional shift towards distributed first. We may very well have an office again at some point in Chicago but it can't be like the office we had. The office we had was an office space, not a facilitation space, not a meeting space. It was rows and rows of desks with like a few meeting rooms which were terrible and had not very good AV cuz everyone used to be all together. And now when you think about distributed first, like that totally throws that model out the window, which is why we will need a new space with a totally different kind of setup. There's a tool called Notion which is just a fancy basically internal wiki that you can capture and document things and to support distributed culture, you have to write things down. Things you used to just be able to chat about in the kitchen, you now have to really write about to encourage asynchronous communication. That's a totally different muscle for a company to learn how to flex. And so we're just now really thinking about being super intentional on how to be distributed first. And I've been talking to all the CEOs I know who have been running distributed companies for the last 10 years who have always been distributed first and ask them, how do you think about onboarding? And how do you think about documentation? How do you think about decision making? How do you change your company communication strategy? Like the idea of having to write everything down before you have a meeting, everything's written down in an agenda so people know what they're gonna get to before they get there. After the meeting, you write down the minutes of what was discussed and you share it transparently so everyone can see what's going on. Just things you're not used to doing that have a huge impact when you're distributed only and you can't get together. These are not skills, frankly, that TableXI is good at yet because we've been so used to relying on that crutch of all being together or being able to fly everyone in and get together. I would say I'm trying to be intentional about it, and it is like going to the gym for the first time. There's a huge set of new patterns and exercises we got to go through, and we're not
0: in shape. I love that analogy. I'm finding others also are happening upon, as much as they're, this is frustrating for many people, and they're figuring it out and still figuring it out. They're also finding new efficiencies. You know, stuff like you can take a Zoom recording and have it transcribed and quite accurately using AI. So not everyone necessarily needs to attend the meeting. Yep, I did learn of one uh,
1: that we tried yesterday for the first time, which I was really excited about. Something called a Thought Exchange. Are you familiar with that? Is that, are we talking about a product? It's a tool that we end up deploying. So what I would have done in an old XI, let's say I have a meeting coming up next week, and we're going to have an Ask Me Anything session. And so I'd send out a survey and say, what do people want to know about? And people would submit questions. In a typical survey, what happens is that everyone would respond to my survey, and so I'd see results from 10 different people. But they wouldn't see each other's results, right? And a thought exchange, what you do is you have the same open-ended question, what should we talk about as a company next week? And after you submit two or three questions, you then see everyone else's questions and you can say, ooh, I didn't think about that, but I like that question. I can upvote it or I can downvote it, but like, I do not care about that one at all. And it allows people to interact with each other's ideas. And so when we did this, this is a whole new efficiency for me, the number one thing that people entered was what are we doing with our office space? What's the new office space going to look like? When are we going to move into the new office space? So it was the number one thing. And if I had been a survey, I would have assumed that's the most important thing, but Only one or two people mentioned were brave enough to mention, hey, mental health is suffering. I'm really burning out. What are we doing about that? When they voted, that was the number one thing voted by far. Only one person was brave enough to write it, but it was clearly the most important thing in everyone's minds. And so this is a new efficiency, whereas before I'd have to gather all the survey results and I'd look at the most popular one most frequently mentioned as being the most important. And now I can be like, well, actually, the thing that's most important is the burnout. The office was like third from the bottom because everyone knows we're not moving in anytime soon until COVID is over. And it's a massive improvement in efficiency in terms of finding what people really care about. It's an interesting way when you try to, again, be intentional about how do you make sure everyone has a voice? How do you make a really inclusive environment for distributed team members? Uh, The Thought Exchange probably saved 10 hours from my time on collating insights and packaging up in a way that people could respond to, it all happened in real time inside of six minutes. Way better.
0: That's beautiful.
1: It's, as you said, you have to think about doing things differently and think about if you're distributed first, what new ways of working can you come to, to change the way the things that got you here this far aren't going to get you to the next stage. And especially for people that are trying to be more inclusive and really be distributed first, the ways you facilitate, the ways you meet, the rituals you have all have to adapt. And thankfully, the technology is there in a lot of cases. There are things you can try that hadn't been, you know, wouldn't have been available before. But it's also anyway, one of the things I would say, it's a lot of experimentation. Some of them work. Some of them don't. You got to see what's right. But as you said, are you being intentional about it? I'm trying. like We're trying to think about new ways that we can engage that can build that connection between people since they can't connect over the water cooler, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting to see how things play out. Over the course of the next year, can we turn our point of view, though, towards the past? Can you share with us the most challenging business situation you've encountered in your leadership role? And I realize that it's one brick at a time and every day requires hard work and intentional approach, but there are those battle scars that we all have from the past. And I'm curious what yours look like.
1: Yeah, COVID is not the hardest thing we've had. For us, it was 2012. There is a really critical metric in a services business called CCR, client concentration risk, which is basically a metric of how many eggs do you have in one basket. Rule of thumb, you don't want more than about 20% of your revenue in one account. Things could change. Their business could change. Business leaders could change. Imagine if 80% of your business last year was with Carnival Cruise Line and then COVID happens. So you have to be careful about that in a services business. We had about 56% of our revenue with a single account. And it was growing at nights and weekends startup speed for years. And so when you work at that speed and never get a chance to invest in paying down some of the debt that builds up when you're working that fast and invest back into the architecture and refactoring, that code base can get really, really difficult to work in. And we were advocate early on say, hey, we really need to go clean things up. We need to slow things down and invest in the refactoring and making this code base more stable. And they would say, no, 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 just go faster, faster. Just add more people, it'll be fine. And they were our biggest client. I don't think we had the ability or the strength or maybe just like the gumption to push back. So we did for years, we did nights and weekend speed and just added to the technical complexity of this. Until it got to the point where it became the Hotel California of projects. Like once you rolled on, You could never leave because you'd finally, after six months, figure out how this really complex system worked. And once you finally did, you were there. You could never roll off to do something else because you finally got it now. And we started having these company values of sustainable pace and work-life balance. But not for you. You got to work nights and weekends again. And we talk about the ability to learn new skills, but not for you. You got to stay in this code base because you finally get it now. And it was just becoming impossible for us to have the company we wanted to be. But I mean, think about that. More than half of our revenue was on this project. This one account generated all of the margin. They paid their bills on time. A lot of our others didn't. So we had cash flow impacts, pipeline impacts. We never had to worry about recruiting. There was always more work to do on this account. We made the decision. We told them we really need to slow things down, refactor, and change things, or we need to part ways. And we were their entire technology team. So they had no option but us, and they were our biggest client. We had no option but them. So they called our bluff and said, nope, just keep going. And we said, no, seriously, we have to make a change or we have to part ways. And we ultimately found them another partner and ended up parting ways. And we went from having 50 some odd percent of my revenue had to be replaced in 12 months. And not only was it a revenue problem, when we looked at this, everything else in the business was broken. The other clients we had, all low margins. So we had a margin problem. We had people that were paying their bills late. We had a cash flow problem. We had... Very little people things for people to do right away. We had a utilization problem. like Everything was broken. And in 2012, we had to reinvent pretty much the entire business. It was like racing down the highway and changing tires while the car is going 60 miles an hour down the highway. It's the hardest challenge I've ever tried to tackle. And our founder, to his credit, made this impossibly difficult decision. He's like, this is going to be an existential risk to the business. But I'd rather make the separation and do what's right to keep the business that we want to have versus just stay here because the money's easy because it's the path of least resistance like it was getting so hard to say we have these values but not for you and you got to keep working nights and weekends like that's not who we wanted to be and so we fired a client and dealt with all the aftermath all while not trying to cut anyone's salary or let anyone go or have any layoffs it was the hardest thing i've ever done and you still feel those battle scars today like i'm i still check and worry about client concentration risk. I still think about when we have a really big client, how can I diversify this risk? I never want to be in
0: that position again. Firing a big client is, at least from my experience, is not what you do. You change your way of servicing them and you let them self-select out, right? Decide that you're no longer a good partner. And the reason you do that is to protect your own revenue stream. And... It seems like certainly in this case you communicated the need for change to them. How did you go about firing them? You said you replaced yourself with another partner. Did- well, so it's, we said we need to make this change, and they said we don't
1: agree. And we said we really need to make this change, and so then they brought in someone else to do like a big technical audit and say, okay, well, what is the state of the code base? Is this really as dire as they say? And so we started working with them and said, unless you make this change, we will not be able to work with you, and ultimately made that decision. It's funny, the same partner then came in and gave them the same recommendation and they said, okay, to the second person. It's like you're dating someone and you ask them to get married and they say no. And then they marry the next person they start dating and you're like, come on, you weren't ready to commit then, but now you are. So the second person who gave them the same advice, they ended up doing that refactoring, cleaning things up. So we didn't drop them overnight. We said, okay, we'll go from... of our revenue down to 20% in year one, and then from 20% to 0%. So we'll gradually ramp down. We'll find you a new partner. We'll ramp them up. So we weren't mean about it. We wanted to give them time to find a new partner and make that partner successful. But ultimately, I think it wasn't going to be the partnership we needed. And they had five partners. Three of them were suing the other two. Like we were frequently in the middle. It was a messed up situation on many fronts. And they couldn't come to agreement on this very important strategic decision. And we were the ones left holding all the suffering. And so we decided that it wasn't going to be a place for us. So we did it gradually over the course of about 12 months and found a partner that could help them execute on the vision we really advocated for and moved on. And I gained about 50 pounds and didn't sleep for a long time, like stressed the hell out, but managed to grow the company and great new clients and hire great new people and really invest in new technologies. Like it's an 18 year old company, but really it was reborn in 2012.
0: Mm hmm. And that was shortly after you joined, right? Yeah, that was year one. Year one. Biggest unexpected success. I would actually point to the thing I'm proudest of. So imagine, so we lose our biggest client.
1: I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm trying to build a business. You know, I went from being a really good project manager and people that ran accounts. Now I'm running a business. And I was like, God, I just fired my biggest client. I have no idea what I'm doing. I was clearly out over my skis, freaking out. And so I reached out to some of my biggest competitors and said, I don't know if you're up for it, but would you want to get eggs and breakfast one day? We can just chat at a diner and kind of catch up. I'm new to Chicago. I'm new to this space. I'd love to pick your brain. And we got together. And once a month, we get breakfast and just chat. And I started realizing how much value there was in learning from people that did similar things. And so I reached out to some of the best people in my industry, rented a gorgeous house down in South Carolina, and said, listen, for a long weekend, we're going to get together and talk shop. And I'm going to teach you all the things I'm really good at. And I'm going to tell you all the things I'm really bad at. And hopefully we can share some ideas. We called it OpsConf, which stands for Operations Conference. It was the idea to talk about how do you run a talk shop. All of them said yes. I actually ended up renting three houses because everyone's like, yeah, I'll I'll give a go at that. And that first year, it was a little awkward because people didn't know exactly why they were there. But I went first and said, "You know, these are the things that I'm struggling with. These are things I'm good at. And slowly but surely, people started giving each other advice and trusting each other. And then what happens when founders and owners start to get to know each other a bit? I mean, it's disgusting in Chicago, nine months of the year. And so we'd start saying things like, well, do you want to do an exchange? We'd have a developer go down to... Costa Rica for a week, and then their team would come and visit us for a week. And you'd start being able to have each other, like have a developer from that company pair on your projects. And then you start pitching deals together. We've been doing this now for seven years, where these management teams will call each other for advice. These are direct competitors giving each other advice, helping each other think about projects. When COVID hit, and everyone was very worried about how we get through it. Each of us would pair each other's projects to make sure like if someone had a project they couldn't staff, they'd reach out for help and people would jump in and help them. Or if people were like, oh my gosh, I just lost a project and I've got five people on the bench. Then they'd be like, great, I could totally use some help don't you jump in on my work. We all kind of collaborated together. The thing I'm proudest of is a sense of cooperation of people that are direct competitors that are helping each other on the advice, on the strategy side. And there's so much work out there We all value that shared inspiration and support more than we fear that competition. And like I've lost projects to these people. We've had people change companies, like work from one company, go to someone else. One company acquired another one. Like It's still business. But you recognize the value in that sense of inspiration and support. And so to have not just participated in that, but to start that and to see that community really become a thriving community, it's not a conference anymore. These people talk all the time. I'm incredibly proud of that. And it has saved TableXI many times when we are oversold and I need to bring in help. And I can bring in some of the best people from around the world to jump in on TableXI projects. And then I get to learn from those people as well. There's a great cultural exchange of knowledge that happens. It's a really unique thing that we get to talk about that exists in the software community. And started off as me needing desperately needing advice on how to run a business and has turned into this really thriving community of some insanely smart people who all kind of lean in together. That's clearly one of the things I'm proudest of because it's such a unique thing in the software space.
0: Yeah. Is it indeed the software space or does it also include IT services, if you will?
1: Generally speaking, so they're all services businesses. They're no product companies. They're all in the same general size. So you don't have an independent contractor and you don't have like an Accenture either. Like they're all in that same relative size. And we all do similar kinds of things around product design, development, software, custom software development. Because that way, when we talk about like the challenges of utilization or the challenges of diversity in recruiting, like each of us knows exactly what we're talking about and how we can help out or what we're seeing in different markets. And it provides great opportunities for team members to collaborate together. There's a fair amount of business that's exchanged back and forth. And so it's like the opposite of Vistage. Vistage is a CEO peer group where you're not supposed to have a competitor in the room. And this is straight up direct competitors purposely getting together to talk shop.
0: Yeah. I think it's fantastic. I'm just surprised in that I've worked in software shops and I certainly have seen the level of collaboration there. And in many ways it's not surprising that they're just as collaborative as businesses. But IT services on the other hand is it's a little bit more competitive, not as cooperative as an industry. At least that's what I've seen. Which is why I asked the clarification on if it's inclusive of more like systems integrators and guys like that, or if it's product or uh, product development companies.
1: It's really a, more, I think, on the custom development, custom design side of things than necessarily uh, so IT services. And honestly, I know with my last company, I definitely you know you'd be competing with the big five consultancies. So you come out kind of gloves up, kind of trying to angle out competition. Landed a big account like Walgreens and trying to push out Cap Gemini or you know push out Deloitte or something. And that's not how this works at all. I think in the small mid market space, as I said, there's enough work out there, and these are companies that really benefit from that cooperation mindset. It's been a game changer for most of the companies in that group.
0: Yeah. And so OpsCon evolved into Walkshop, is that correct? The spin off company.
1: Kind of, yeah. So the co-founder of OpsConf and I both were thinking about ways we could get people to support each other on a more personal level. And when I became CEO for the first time, having never been a CEO before, I wanted to reach out to other people who had done that job well and take a big step back before taking a step forward. So we ended up finding this great hiking trail in the middle of nowhere in Scotland. It's about a five-day hike. And found a service that would carry our bags for us. So we go on this long walk with a metaphorical weight of the world on your shoulders, but no bag, You're just going for a long walk in the woods. And 10 CEOs went out, five men, five women go hiking through Scotland. And it was great to have really dedicated people you could talk to. And you have no Zoom, you know, Slack, no email interruptions. You have a whole day to think and talk with these people. And rather than sitting down you get this energy by walking and movement. And the trail was really wide. You have a big group conversation. The trail got really narrow. You have a more one-on-one kind of conversation. And the relationships you forge when you're out hiking 40,000 steps a day with people across these incredible vistas, like you get to know these people pretty well by day five. People are still in WhatsApp groups texting and talking all the time and still engaging. I've been encouraged and challenged by people on those hikes to do incredible things in my business I never would have done otherwise. It's thing I miss probably the most is in pandemic. I can't get outside with people and walk side by side. I can't travel like I used to. So right before pandemic, we were about to go to Italy to do the walkshop this year. And of course, that was like number one hotspot at the beginning of the pandemic. So workshop was on hold, unfortunately, but rather than an actual workshop, we call it a workshop, because you're on your feet the entire time. And it's one of the best things we've done. i really enjoy that way of getting to know people.
0: Yeah. Extraordinary. Can you close us out here with a bit of hindsight? And in business, there's always something you could have done better. And as you think back on what you've learned, what you've done, is there anything that you made or you would have done differently if you had to go back and do it again?
1: At every single step, I think there would be. I think from my own personal health, I would have Tried that delegate and elevate sooner. I think I would have taken myself out of the sales role before I was comfortable letting go and tried to be really lean into that vision more. I think I really underestimated and still do underestimate how important that is for people to know not what we're doing or how we're doing it, but why we're doing it. And painting a picture for where the business is going to go I get so wrapped up in the idea of building something or executing something that I sometimes devalue how important it is to paint that picture and communicate the vision of where the business is going and talk a lot about what are we doing this month, next month, not where are we going to be in 10 years. And I talk a lot about what we're doing right now as opposed to why we're doing it. And that is a amateur CEO mistake. And so the thing I think I'm realizing is how powerful a story is how important alignment is to that vision and every bit is important when you get the company together for like an all hands for example rather than talking about what you're going to do in Q1 or what's going to be happen using that time to really help align around where you're going to be where you want to be in the long term and being intentional about things like culture and things i've learned that mistake slowly and the hard way so i think that's the thing i'd want to go back and tell myself it's not about being busy as a first-time CEO, it's not about your first 100 days. It's not about all the things you're going to try and execute. It's about communicating a vision that aligns people and helping them execute to that vision, as opposed to you being really, really busy and knocking things out as quickly as you can in that new role. So I came into the role of a visionary, of a CEO with an operator mindset. For four years, I was in that mindset. And I think that was to my detriment, to the company's detriment. And it's something I'm trying to lean into more now is around storytelling as a skill.
0: Is there something that pushed you to recognize this?
1: Yeah, actually, the team that I hired, the team I brought on, we have, like I said, that new person who's the product person who's in charge of sales. We brought on a strategy person to be our head of finance. These are really in seasoned, really incredible people on my leadership team. And they were the ones who were really thirsty for demanding for that kind of sense of alignment and vision of where we were going. And it's something that, I, like I said, I downplayed. I didn't think it was important. I'm like, ah, mission statements are a bunch of crap. We don't need that. Like, We should be focusing on how we're going to make this month's numbers and things like that. And they have been really pushing to stop and think about that bigger picture of where we want to go and using the valuable, precious all-hands time when we actually have everyone all together to talk about those things. That's like the... One of the best speakers that we've had in the last hundred years, you think about Winston Churchill and things he said, or Martin Luther King he said, I have a dream that I have a plan. He didn't talk about like the day-to-day steps. He's like, This is where I want to get to, this kind of civilization, this kind of world. And I think I was too much in the I have a plan speech kind of thing. Uh, and that no one cares about the I have a plan speech.
0: Yeah. I remember Daniel Pink talking about this in one of his YouTube videos, and it's I have a dream versus I have a plan. And When you put it that way, it's far clearer. Understanding what you're going to do isn't as compelling as the why. Yeah, honestly, that's my fault as a rookie CEO from an operator
1: doer mindset. I came up through the ranks. I'm used to thinking about execution, and that's how I probably operated for the first couple of years in that role. And so that is a hindsight mistake is not leaning into the why and not leaning into the vision as much as I should.
0: Well, kudos to your team for asking why. I think it's easy to get stuck in the rut of what do you want to do next or what needs to get done next. So kudos to them. Mark, it's been wonderful hearing your stories and learning more about Table TableXI. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast-emerging strategic consultancy to middle-market businesses. You can find us online at www.kgkcompany.com. That's K-G-K-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y dot com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.